everybody, you're listening to The Rogue Podcast with Fox and Maya. Thanks for supporting the show. This is a show with adult content, so if you're not of legal age where you live, then turn off now. This podcast is about rope bondage. Rope bondage is edge play with inherent risk, and we strongly recommend you get proper training and listen to episode zero before attempting it. Find it at the top of our FedLife page, Rope Podcast. Fox is a rigger and I'm a bottom, and we're rock partners who've been practicing together for around four years. We love sharing our enthusiasm for rock from you from my home in the lovely Bangkok, Thailand. Yes, Maya, and today we are connecting Bangkok, Thailand with New York City, USA, because we're very pleased to welcome the team behind New York City Street Shibari Project. Oh, that sounds very exciting. Yes, so that's Rope Model Zero G, photographer Dirty Archangel, which is not on the air with us, but is with us in spirit. <laughs> uh, and Rigger Sam J. Hi, guys. Hiya. Oh, it's wonderful to, to be here. Uh, thanks very much for having us. And uh, as disclosure, we're actually coming from the Ill- illegitimate sixth borough of New York City, which is uh, euphemistically known as West New York or Jersey City. But we're about uh, 20, 20 minutes from Midtown. And so certainly our thoughts are, are definitely with everybody that's uh, lost uh, family members and lost jobs here. You know, it's, uh, it's like uh, 700 deaths a day. Uh, right now that's, for that's the past like week or 10 days and obviously it's hard all across the world so our thoughts are with those people uh aside from you know everything that we'll discuss today mm. all right well we join you in those thoughts sam yeah, so thank you for that. so guys your project brings shibari to the streets of new york and you use iconic backdrops from the city contrasted with Gigi doing some pretty amazing feats of rope, such as uh, recently yeah. hanging from a vertical chest harness off a bridge in Central Park. Uh, so yeah, today we're talking about your project, your inspiration, how you guys work together to create this beautiful art, and mostly what well, we're talking about rope. So to start with the usual way, how did you guys get started in rope? Oh, that's such a that's that's such a wonderful question, and um, to use a bit of a rope pun, so loaded. Uh, <laughs> but um, we started our rope partnership um, about a year and a half ago, and um, we have really compatible, um, really compatible as as Sam J likes to put it, uh, thrill sets, <laughs> and so. We were pretty much off to the races immediately, and um, we have a very similar sense of exploration and excitement, and we share ideas a lot, and so we've gotten quite entangled with each other as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Before that, um, I have a much shorter history than Sam J does. Um, it's been two and a half very devoted years, and um, unlike uh, unlike his his ten, but. Um, I've I've had a, a really wonderful thirst that can't seem to get quite quenched so far, and um, every day it just gets better. Sounds nice. What about you, Sam? How did you get started with rope? Uh, I discovered the fetish scene in Melbourne, Australia in 2011, early 2011. And uh, the Melbourne Rope Dojo opened in June, and I was one of the first five students at the Melbourne Rope Dojo uh, when it opened. And I just kind of went because it was just something to check out, just like you go to some Impact Skillshare and you're learning about everything. 
And, uh, you know, I was really a dilettante for a couple of years uh, and I had no idea how tremendously good the rope education I was getting. Uh, so Scott that was running it was a licensed OSADA Steve instructor. And so the quality of education that I was getting was amazing. And uh, at the time, I was also really heavy into the the Melbourne art scene. I was dating a, a Romanian sculptor at the time, so just really piped into that. And she had this massive dream of running life drawing sessions. And so I immediately saw the connection between what you could do with Shibari and life drawing. So in 2012, uh, you know, just a year into rope, I was hosting these uh, life drawing sessions uh, through 2013, uh, well before it became like a standard activity in the world. But at the same time, I would just have rope as this toy that I would incorporate into my other scenes. And it would be this one thing that would always fuck up. It was the one annoying thing in every scene. And I just kept, it kept bugging me and I kept having to work at it. And eventually it just uh, crowded everything else out. And what I like about rope is this is this way to get close to someone. And it's just so high contact, high interaction that really I can't even imagine stepping back five feet to throw a whip because it's like, I want to get into this person's grill. And so it just uh, became all consuming. And so about three years in, maybe in 2014, uh, I started uh, having to leave the rue behind. And the reason why was because it seemed really strange to take another rope tops ideas and impose it on my rope partner. Mm -hmm. And I had a partner at the time that just didn't like the whole uh, interaction forms of like, let's say Osada Rue. And uh, it took me three years to sort of break away from that dogma. And then, uh, and then I moved to uh, back to the States uh, to Boston. And then a year and a half ago, I moved to New York and so each one of those evolutions has been sort of a different feeling and a different process. But if I think about where my rope is going, sure, we've become known for this uh, NYC street shibari stuff. But really, if I think the area of growth, at least for me, is home ties, hot, connective home floor ties. And really, times. and really developing empathy and observation and uh, – empathy for my partner. And so that's a long process that I am, you know, so far from, you know, being where I would want to be. And so that's really sort of where my rope journey is at. Brilliant. So Gigi, you, you said a bit of, about when you, you got interested, but is there a specific thing that had planted the interest for rope in your mind? Absolutely. And so uh, I got involved in um, FetLife after about a year of very dedicated research because that is my way. I'm an academic. <laughs> and so um, I, I got into the FetLife and I immediately looked up my local scenes educational events. Mm -hmm. And I went to uh, and it was on Long Island. And so I went to um, three days after opening my FetLife account, a uh, consent and negotiation round table. And it had everybody from the whole island was there, it felt like. And that was how I got to meet the people who were really close to me. And I uh, had immediately been attracted to the rope that I saw on FetLife. And I uh, got connected to somebody who did that really well on Long Island and um, he started showing me what he did. We um, ended up getting involved and I, he, he really 
helped me on uh, my my first little ties. And so um, I started bottoming really actively from there. And I started self-tying almost immediately just because um, in my daily life, I'm, I'm a daily practicer. Uh, and so it's what comes really naturally to me is like, got to practice a thing every day. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, day one, that was a karata. Day two, it was a futamomo. Day three, it was, it was weaving ties. And um, it, it's just, it's pretty much an everyday addiction. And so I... Um, like an an almost everyday rope bottom and an almost everyday self tire and um for the, for the love of of uh beautiful feminine them type creatures I have occasionally been known to transform into a rope top but um, oh. that's really just when somebody's got uh those eyes that blink at me and uh, I just can't tell them no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know what's really funny in the in the rope scene is uh, so Gigi's an academic, and uh, you know the the number of PhD rope tops and rope bottoms in the scene is ridiculous. I went to an intensive in New York in 2017, and uh, I'm looking around the room, and I'm like, maybe I'm the fi- maybe I'm like the third best PhD rope top in this room of 12 <laughs> rope tops, and uh, and I started just checking things out, and no, I was like the fifth best PhD rope top out of 12. You know, it's just like the the amount of like education of people that get drawn to rope is ridiculous. We're definitely the nerds of the kink world, and I stand by that. <sighs> hey guys, this is Fox coming in for a short break. We really love making this podcast and sharing it with you. But your support can really help us pay for the hosting, the equipment, and other critical costs. So if you like this podcast and you want to support us, you can do so at ropepodcast.com. You'll find ways to buy rope tutorials and gear so we get a small commission from your purchase at no extra cost to you. In addition, you could also donate to us directly on our Patreon either as a one-off amount or a monthly support that can be as little as the price of a cup of coffee. If you can't afford to do that, that's okay. Just enjoy the podcast and maybe tell a kinky friend or two about it. Now back to today's episode. So what's the origin story of New York City Street Shibari? How did you guys set that up? How did you get hooked up with Dirty Archangel? How did all of that work? Yeah, so it was definitely uh, Dirty Archangel's first baby of an idea. He contacted me in fall of 2018 and uh, messaged me, totally a cold message, uh, with this vision of his panoramic photographs of New York City with me in rope in the foreground. And I was just sort of like, uh, like, okay, man. But then I looked at what he had on offer in his portfolio, and he had the most stunning the most stunning panoramic shots of New York City. It was iconic. Every single one was a masterpiece. And he had these gigantic, decadent, wall-sized prints that he had, uh, like, all over corporations. And um, so, like, all of a sudden, it was just like, man, this guy's really got something special. But um, it was still very much the case that my priorities have never been with, like, creating content. This is... Um, my, my passion and what I love. And so I was really focused on um, the things that were going on in my life. And I pretty much put it um, as a solid maybe. And then I was involved with Sam J and we developed 
a really strong rope relationship uh, by that point. Um, some of those things that we'd gotten into by like a year later were um, the first documented single toe suspension, which was hot <laughs> which times we, for we, us. We pretty much did within a month of of meeting each other. It was just like you meet this person that is just like this yes and thrill seeker. And it's just like this logical evolution. Like, uh, I think maybe our second tie, we pulled something from Nicholas Uroy, which was a TK plus a big toe suspension. And we just launch into that. And Gigi's just uh, loving it and just owning it. And and then it's just like, well, if you can do that, uh, how about this other thing? And, you know, she's all over it. Totally. No, no, but we researched it for a month. And uh, I will say that it was it was my it was my research task. And it was it was definitely a proposal. It was not a mandate. Like, by the way, in a month, big toe, you and me, we're on. Uh, it's an incredible although that would have photo. been a really wonderful proposition. Oh, thank you. It's uh, it's a hilariously Bigfoot-esque photo. But um, I think that that's sort of how it should be. But uh, the way the place that I ended up having to go to find any sort of writing about this um was I needed to go to medieval torture records uh, because that was the only place I, I, I was able to find in sports. I was able to research um, like big toe dislocations from um, like upward and downward injuries, but nothing about pulling a big toe. And so I needed to go to records of people being strung up by their toes for torture in the medieval era. And that was the only place that I was able to get any sort of idea on a precedent um, that was that was recorded on the internet as far as I could find. And we had looked at the risks really thoroughly, both as um, like physical consequences. Uh, we had our plans. We had negotiated toe breaking and toe dislocations and exactly what sequence of events would lead up to. Uh, What's so funny is like people, <laughs> people are always worried about the big toe, but you see this person inverted. It's not whether or not we break the big toe. We're, we're okay with that. Yep. It's whether or not we drop Gigi on her head hmm. and she breaks her neck or hits her head, right? And that's why that's why her arms are over her head as a little extra insurance. But we're going to tie that thing so fucking tight because what's important is we don't break her neck. And yes. so I think people don't realize the, the level of injury that we are okay to take on mm-hmm. provided it is not permanent long-term dan- damage. And Gigi really gave me in this space – a level of enthusiasm and a level of confidence that we would be okay with the outcome. Yeah. For me, it's really about relationship risk as much as it is um, physical risk. And so uh, that is something that has carried on and something that made this all of a sudden, this thing with Swiss DA feel like a possibility. Um, thank you for putting it so wonderfully. Um, and so like that was, that was right out of the gate, just sort of the type of thing that worked well for us. And then uh, at that point we had, um, hung me off of the outside of a fifth floor railing when we went to Seattle and we'd had a couple of abandoned locations that we'd done, um, with friends and also just with the two of us because, uh, we were just so well within our comfort zone that we knew that, uh, Sam J could, climb up a uh, really difficult, really difficult climb. And I, I do the, the same climb and he could tie himself in, tie me while up there. Um, like in this case, it was um, standing on the window bars of a jail about two stories up. And 
I, I'd like to say that anything that I can climb, Gigi can climb in high heels. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was one case where I was in six inch heels doing the same climb. <laughs> um, it's very kind of you to say. But uh, but but you also have a, a really strong history with altitudes, which also made this idea of uh, going on the streets really uh, – it, it all seemed possible all of a sudden. Yeah. So as background, I spent uh, 2010 working for $12 an hour as a radio tower climber uh, mm. out in all weather with 50, 50 pounds of broadband equipment on my back. Wow. And you learn – very quickly at, you know, 800 feet up that you do not want to drop a screwdriver. Yeah. You do not want to drop a part uh, because that is a two or three hour climb. Yeah. Not to mention the people underneath. Indeed. Uh, whether or not there are people underneath, it's really about the effort on his part. <laughs> um, uh, these are these are radio towers out in the middle of no place. There's, there's nobody underneath. All right. But it's all about this level of experience. And then I am just a, a born monkey. I've been trying to climb everything that was accessible uh, since I could since I could crawl. And um, so just this really shared thirst for adventure and creating together. And we had this confidence in each other's abilities and attitudes in adverse conditions that just made things seem possible. We knew that he could be uh, across a the span of a jail, taking photos from way far back, and that he is at least 10 minutes from being able to reach me, and that I am strung up upside down, and that uh, we're not going to have any problems that we can't handle. Uh, but that's also that's also that's also Gigi in the sense that she gives a lot of confidence in her body awareness and her communication. So it's like I have the confidence to do that because I know that her experience as a self-suspender you know, doing this like almost every day. She knows what she can handle. She knows what feels like good and bad pain. She knows how long it's going to take me to get to her to do these things. It, it's not the case that, you know, I'm just so awesome and that I could do this with anyone. It's just, I can't. Uh, it's just the case that she gives me a lot of confidence that I can do these things uh, because she will let me know. And there's plenty of times where I fully believe that I have a heart attack out there that she's going to get herself out Yep. She's going to get down and she's going to rescue me. And oh, I absolutely. feel like we, we, we talk about all these ideas about, you know, safety for the rope bottom. But it, it's like, well, I've strung you up at home. And if I have a heart attack, uh, how are you going to save me? You know, the safety of the rigor. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> these are the risks that we're talking about at home. <laughs> um. And so, uh, yeah, absolutely. And so these are the types of conditions that made this all of a sudden feel possible between him and me. And then there was also at this point a level of exposure to what the New York City possibilities of outdoors and the public were. Because, of course, you know, I, I was raised in the same um, don't uh, fly your kink flag culture that I, I think is really important to talk about what is appropriate to expose the public to and what is not mm. appropriate to expose the public to. And I think that context is really important here. And so New York City just has a very different context for what is okay in the public and what is um, protected in the public as freedom of expression. And um, we might get into that a little bit later as far as the gains that um, we benefit from from the queer community in, in our history for our city. 
but um, that that's a huge part of things. When we were at the New York City Pride Parade last year, um, I was uh, staging for the block of the parade walkers for the, the Eulenspiegel Society, which is a really old, um, in fact, it is the oldest recorded kink organization in, they think, the world. Wow. I, I, I might be wrong about that. But um, we were with them, and one of our friends was there and had some rope. It was just like, hey, Gigi, huh? and sort of like points at the scaffolding. And I was like, ah, because I, I was. Gigi ain't um, going to say no. <laughs> no, but, but, but I, I, was, I was there with you. So I made sure that I wasn't going to be like uh, totally piking on, on our plans. But he was just sort of like, ah, like, go, go do your thing. And so uh, our friend strung me up from the scaffolding while we were waiting for the parade to get a move on. And um, it was just, it was really good times. It was a whole bunch of corporate types and people who just really uh, like were maybe tourists or maybe not regulars in the kink community, but were very uh, queer, uh, positive, clearly. And so we knew that they had open minds. They just weren't savvy about our community. Mm. Yeah. And, and what I really saw here, like uh, I'm, I'm far more a coward about the public thing uh, than, you know, Gigi is. Uh, what I saw was Gigi's ability to not only be up in suspension, but to radiate joy and to radiate positive reassurance for that corporate audience. So imagine these corporate types like uh, Pride has been so overrun with, you know, corporate connections because everybody wants to look good now. Mm. Right. And so there's all these volunteer corporate types that are out there because they're told this is the good thing to do and we need to make a showing uh, to this community. Uh, it's definitely changed. Right. And so, uh, you know, they're seeing Gigi get strung up and they really don't know what it is. Uh, just like any passerby that might see us, they don't know what it is and they don't know if they should be concerned. Oh, and, and they also don't know the, the, the proper swinging distance radius that you generally give somebody in the air. Right. And so to see how Gigi sort of managed that crowd was really important for me to, to know that this could be okay and that this could be a positive experience, not only for us, but for a wider audience of a New York City passersby. Mm. I, I, uh, thank you for saying so. Yeah. Speaking of which, uh, what's usually the reaction you get from bystanders and from law enforcement when you're out there shooting in the city, potentially naked or in lingerie? Um, so we definitely have varied reactions from the public. Uh, I think that people ask us about cops a lot and about law breaking. Um, and uh, I remember, I remember uh, somebody uh, whinging online that we were committing crimes crimes and uh it's it's like uh at most you know a hundred dollar fine for indecency and uh fifty dollars for obstructing traffic yeah. and that is the full extent of of you know the uh quote crimes they're not even misdemeanors or felonies these are civil fines yeah um and so i think knowing your local laws uh, is really important because I don't think that New York City is typical there at all. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, the first time that occasionally we the, the a couple of times the cops have been called by people who are concerned, who are walking by. And so when we were in Central Park on our first shoot um, later in the morning, the cops came rolled up to just sort of check in. They stayed in their car and like rolled down the window and shouted over to us. I was suspended upside down, um, sort of like 
hanging out in a tree nearby and they were like, hey, we got some calls about an underage person. And I was just like, hi, um, I'm not underage and we're doing fine and um, like we're, we're, we're doing some aerial arts and like they weren't even interested. They just wanted to know that I wasn't under 18, which like high compliments. Yeah. yeah. And, and, so, and so we were, we were absolutely doing something wrong. There was like this fenced off area, but that's where the tree was. And so we're across this boundary and like, you know, if they wanted to tag us for that, they could have, but you know, they're, they're often very much about keeping the peace uh, rather than about issuing tickets. And the other side is there, there's this long, rich history supported by the queer community, but also by other artists in the city that is about really protecting the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of expression. And what might be odd to know about New York is even panhandling is a protected form of freedom of expression in New York. And uh, as odious as that might be, it's protected. And so on the one hand, police officers have to weigh a potential $60,000 lawsuit that's happened, uh, for example, versus issuing these uh, minor fines. And so as long as you're not actually doing something violent or fel felonious or uh, in New York, climbing higher than 25 feet, Higher than 25 feet means that you might fall and land on somebody. So it's a public safety issue. But as long as you're not doing that, uh, they're pretty amenable to what you're doing. And they get artistic expression. They get that no one in New York has space. We all have to go out onto the streets. This is a premium in New York. Yeah. And so all these street performers and artists are out on the street looking for uh, you know, acceptance and recognition and hoping to be like graffiti artists in the, in the past where they were actually outlaws, right? And then there were so many of them that people saw this is beautiful. And now they're celebrated in museums. And, you know, I think the Museum of Brooklyn has got this great photo of somebody committing a piece of vandalism, you know, an actual crime and celebrating this, uh, early graffiti artist. All right. Absolutely. And so um, that's been our experience with law enforcement, I think. And as far as bystanders go, I think that it is a really useful skill in this case to be able to have a reassuring and informative chat about what we're up to while strung upside down by my ankles with my hands tied mm -hmm. behind my back, giving them thumbs up and really goofy yeah. smiles. Yeah. And importantly, it has to be Gigi here because of the gender dynamics. You've got uh, two men and one man doing one man doing the tying. You know, potentially we look like sleaze bags. Potentially we look like uh, assaulters or exploiters of Gigi. And so it's really important that that communication, both the cops and bystanders, come from Gigi. Yeah, nobody's interested in talking to them. They're very interested in talking to the young woman who is bound up. And uh. Thankfully, the, the way that I have, the way that I've learned to interact with these people seems to work really, really well for what we do. So what's, um, what's your so, secret? What, what kind of things do you say? How do you explain Shibari to them? Oh, and so it really depends on what kind of knowledge somebody comes up with. There are definitely people who are just like, ah, oh, yes. I know the Kinbaku. I'm, I'm one of you. She's like, ah, oh, that sounds really cool, man. Thanks. We're just doing our thing. Um, and if something, oh, man, like there are a lot of people who are just sort of like, I know this. I'm one of you. It's like that. That's awesome. 
we're just going to keep doing our thing. <laughs> and if somebody comes up and they want to know that I'm okay, they want to know that I'm not in pain, um, I'm not going to be doing anything that's going to force me to make yes, pain faces. Yes, and Gigi absolutely lies. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, not in like, pain. Oh. Yeah, oh, but like the thing is, if you're going to be in public doing something like this, uh, I just can't see it being possible if you're going to show any signs of pain because at that point, people are going to be concerned that something is wrong. You need to be able to like have a big smile on and reassure everybody else. If you're somebody who needs caretaking and reassurance, um, then you can't be in that position for the public. Yeah, so this is really sort of an artistic expression and an artistic endeavor to really build other sort of uh, directions that rope can go that other people have, you know, uh, you know, move forward with well before us and are far more successful with this sort of idea. The idea that rope can really be used in a lot of different ways and for a lot of different purposes. So we're not going to have a big seminar session, you know, out in public and you got to watch our sort of bedroom ties or yeah, our living room ties. We're definitely not flaunting our kink out there. It's um, we're, we're acting as ambassadors. And it's really this very artistic uh, endeavor. And so sometimes we get some confusion with the kink community because we are outside of the norm of what's acceptable in the kink community. But we are very much in the vein of performance art. And we are well within the boundaries of what performance art works looks like. So performance art is really about capturing the responses of audiences and really provoking and confronting them. And Which is not what we're about at all. No, and that's not it. We're out for acceptance. We're not out to shock people. Yep. And we are not, you know, really about, uh, you know, provoking people. So within that larger world of performance art, we're actually uh, not that controversial. So you do have that um, uh, kinky and artistic sense. And, and in the community right now, I think there's a lot of new people coming in who are much more aerial, much more yoga-y. And, and from my very kinky perspective, perhaps less kinky, but it seems that you guys have both of those sides. So how do you distinguish between that art versus the kink in this project? Mm, okay, uh, that's a great question. I think that those other interaction modes, uh, we, we, we really strongly believe that they are all valid and awesome and that diversity and inclusivity are the way to go and they're the future and they need to be celebrated and welcomed. And I think that there's been a lot of uh, sort of one true wayism and um, superiority of um, of this uh, of, of whatever is the current trend in Shibari for people who are highly educated and um, there's just there's no reason to gatekeep for what rope can be. So I, I think that that's actually pretty great. Right. So I think we're very much about a, a bigger world for rope, that we're not tied to a particular rue or aesthetic. So when we're at home, you know, obviously we're involved in a relationship. And so it's very much about the kink trinity of pain, power and sex. And you can get all of those in a rope interaction. But when we go out to the world, we're engaging in a dialogue. It's a very different sort of uh, engagement and it's just not appropriate to bring those things out necessarily. Yeah. Uh, and so definitely not our DS or um, it's, it's, it's not going to be a uh, power imbalance that we're displaying to the public at all. It's super collaborative. It's super um, 
Right. So context really matters here. We're still pushing the envelope in some dimensions. So uh, ironically, when we go out and when we shoot nude, everybody gets it as art. It looks like art. They get it. It's art. We actually have fewer problems. It's when we shoot in lingerie, we're, we're actually no longer breaking the law, uh, this civil fine, but we are breaking a social contract mm. because people see that this is something intimate that should be in the bedroom. And they feel this conflict in this dialogue, and that's actually really interesting to us because she's fully clothed, right? And, you know, but it somehow that's more – reaction. Yeah. Right. right. It's, it's more, more confronting. confronting. And for that yeah. reason, we partnered with Thistle Inspire, who's providing our lingerie for us. Once again, this other way of building this bigger world. It's really just that we want to um, make friends in different artistic worlds, and we want to – go to their headquarters and we want to talk to them about what we do and have them talk to us about what they do and make connections outside of our very, very insulated uh, kink and rope worlds. And so uh, it, it's also, it's also that. Right. It's also laundering for acceptance. So we, you know, the lingerie industry is already publicly accepted. They are, people are okay with seeing lingerie ads at the bus stop, on big screen uh, advertisements, billboards, you know, everywhere. We're inundated yeah, absolutely. with lingerie ads, and it's okay. They're a success story. Right, and then uh, there's many of these other accepted art forms, and when we partner with these art forms, all of a sudden we become accepted as well, and that's what we're after. And then obviously making friends. It was so fun to go over to Thistle Inspire's headquarters and see their designers, see what they're working on, discuss which colors actually sell and which don't. Absolutely. White doesn't sell, apparently. Oh, yeah, except um, we are really all about mixing the ideas of um, of these um, it, it, it's about what a piece of lingerie says to uh, a late person. And uh, I, I think that white is sort of this idea of um, purity or mm. of newness, this, this debutee. And I think that it works really well with the purity of nature and a scene that is really serene. And it really fights against this idea of dark dungeons and, and these assumed spaces of what, bondages yeah and so uh so we we told them exactly what we liked about white and why white was right uh in some context and you know what the next time we visited them they had a whole fleet of white lingerie items yeah and they they fully outfitted us for a, a performance in in new york city with their new white stuff and so that was pretty cool and so it's really about these friendships where we can trade ideas we think the ideas are the greatest currency that we have to offer and to learn from other people. And so I think that there are a lot of people who are coming into Shibari who are doing new things and that's awesome. And we're doing something maybe a little bit different, but we don't want to fight against anybody else who's doing other new things. And I, I think that uh, there's this thing in the rope world, uh, going back to your original question about, uh, you know, uh, you know, sex versus non-sexual rope, uh, we both have partnerships in rope that are either sexual or non-sexual. We're okay with both, uh, depending on the person that we're with, as long as it's very consent, consistent interaction. Both modes are fine. And I think sometimes 
we run into this uh, problem in the rope world that I think we also see in the littles community. The littles community is very divided as to whether you're a sexual little or a non-sexual little. And a lot of, uh, you know, potential mud can be thrown in that environment. And uh, really both are okay. Yeah. Whatever you're doing. Neither of these is more pure than the other. And uh, neither of these is dirty. And and, uh, it's as long as everything is negotiated between two adult and capable parties who are fully understanding and on board with what you're doing like man that's pretty dang okay all right listeners we're gonna take a little break here i think you can tell already that sam j and zero g have a lot of interesting stories to tell about rope so rather than not give you all of it we've decided to split this interview into two episodes so look forward to the second half of this interview in our next episode with an exclusive behind the scene on that famous central park bridge suspension hope you'll join us again then in the meantime, if you'd like to support the Rope Podcast, you can find all the ways to do that on our website, ropepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. And have fun tying. <laughs>